All right, well, I'm ready to dig in, and I don't know if you're excited to be here, but I'm excited for you, so here we go. We don't have a whole lot of time today. We've got a lot to cover, and so I just want to jump in real quickly. We're going to do a quick review. If you haven't been here for any of this series, what we have essentially talked about is that we said the Bible begins with God living with man uh, on the earth, and that's where we have the Garden of Eden, and then mankind mess it up with the whole apple thing, if that's what you want to uh, say about that, but sin was introduced, God takes off, and then he sets in motion a whole plan of restoring that broken relationship. And then eventually along comes a guy named Abraham. He gives him some promises that there's going to be a descendants. We know that they become the nation of Israel. And then from there, he says, we're going to give those people a bunch of land and that will last forever. And the person who's going to rule all of this land is going to come from the line of David. And there's some promises to David called the Davidic covenant. And he says to David, there's going to be a ruler in your lineage on sitting on the throne of Israel that's going to rule over all of this land forever. And then along comes Jesus. He's born and he fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies. And from there, then he's crucified. He's dead three days. God raises him from the dead. And he talks about this kingdom thing. And he says, I'm going to eventually establish a kingdom on the earth. And it's his entire point of his ministry. And then he's taken to heaven. And then the book of Acts begins and the disciples go out and they share this message. And their message was pretty simple. It said basically, uh, hey, you killed him, God raised him, say you're sorry, because he's coming back. And so that's the entire message, and Paul teaches the same thing. And then we get to the book of Revelation, which is an image and a picture and a vision of how the world is going to end. And in the end of the book, it ends the same way it began, with God living on earth with man. Whew, got it? If you missed it, go back and listen to the whole series on the website. Now, Today, um, last week, we, we talked about what happens when we die in preparation for this, and that was an interesting thing because the Bible messes with some of our preconceived notions, and we saw that the Bible talks about death in terms of a sleep, and that sleep is going to end when we're given eternal life, and that it happens at the second coming of Christ. So today was supposed to be the conclusion of this series, and we we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and what eternal life is really like, but as I got to looking at this, there is so much to talk about. I had to cover the second coming, the resurrection, the kingdom on the earth, judgment. I'm like, whew, that's too much for one day. Otherwise, you'd have a great series today. So I'm going to split today into two weeks. We're going to come back and finish this next week. But today, what I want to talk about is specifically the second coming and the resurrection, because that's the promise that's going to end our sleep of death. And then the next week, I'm going to talk about judgment and eternity, and what the kingdom is going to be like. And then following that, December 18th, we're going to have a guest speaker, uh, Jacob Rohr. So you don't want to miss any of these. Here we go. Are you ready? We're just going to jump right in. So I'm going to start with this, that the Bible divides history into two ages. Because if we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ, we need to have an understanding of how God views history. And I've said through this entire series that these really aren't motivational sermons. These are just raw teachings. This is my last ditch effort to get you guys up to speed before we leave town. And this is what the Bible has to say, so you guys will be biblically literate and ready to go. So the Bible talks about history, God views history as divided into two ages. First, we live in what's called the present evil age. The writers talk about this. This specific phrase shows up in one of the letters that Paul writes. He's writing to a group of believers in Galatia, and he says this in his opening comments, "'Grace and peace to you from God our Father,' And from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from 
the present evil age. And I don't think that's any surprise to us. All we have to do is flip on the news at night, and we understand that the age in which we live is not perfect, right? There's some crummy things happening, and we would probably agree with the assessment that this present evil age is, in fact, evil. However, from God's perspective, this age isn't permanent. There is next going to come what is called the coming age, that we live in this present age, which is evil, but there is also a coming age. Notice Paul's writing when he writes to his friend Timothy. He says to believers like you and me, believers who had extra in their lives, there was some more than just getting food for the table. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So this is how you're supposed to live your life. Why? In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for what? The coming age. So from God's perspective, history is divided into two ages, the present evil age, the age in which sin reigns, Satan has been given rule over the earth, but that is not the permanent status of things, that that age will end And there is a coming age which will be characterized by perfection, eternity, as we usually call it. Some people refer to it as heaven or the kingdom, okay? So that's what's coming. When does that age begin? When Christ comes back to fix it. So it's important that we talk about the return of Christ, which is why I'm glad you're here today. Now, one of the things that is promised to us throughout Scripture, one thing that Christians have always talked about is something called the eternal life, right? So essentially, eternal life, we need to understand as a promise of Christians, eternal life is intricately linked to the second coming. But that's because the phrase eternal life is not really a complete phrase. It gives an air of... It gives off a sense of something that it's not. So I want to take a side trail with you right now to talk about the biblical phrase eternal life because what the original writers used to, re- to communicate this really will show, I think, to you how it's connected to the coming age. Okay, Eternal life in the scriptures is literally life in the coming age, and here's why. Are you ready to take this little detour with me? John 3.16, ever hear that? Right? Here's what we'll read in English translations, and they're not wrong, I just don't think they're rich enough in this particular instance. We know that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So I just want to take that last little phrase there, go to the next screen here, uh, shall not perish but have eternal life. If you were to take the Greek words and just pull them out word for word and not rearrange them so it's easy to read in English, here's the wording order. It says they should not, or they not should perish but have life eternal. So why does it say life eternal? Because that's what the Greek says. Why does that matter? Well, let's look at this. The phrase life eternal. Now, you probably didn't know that you were going to get a language lesson, but just go with me for a second. We'll put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you. In the original language, it looks like this. Zoene Aeonian. I know. You're like, looks like scribbles to me. It's okay. If we were to take each of those Greek letters and create an English letter that's the best approximation of the letter, this is what it says. Zoene Aeonian. Okay? Still, you're like, so what, Seth? Well, here's why this matters. Because the root word for zoene is zoe, which means life. That's the Greek word that is the basis for zoo or zoology. Zoology is the study of 
life. You go to the zoo to see different um, kinds of life, right? Animals, all right? And then aeonian there, go to the next one to highlight that, really means age long. That's the Greek word that's the root for eon, right? We talk about eons and eons and eons. That is an unending determination length of time, right? I mean, it, it is an age. So specifically, what Jesus is promising us is age-long life, or specifically life in the coming age that will go on for an indeterminate period of time. We're told that that coming age will never end. It's everlasting. So the promise of eternal life isn't just living forever. It's specifically to be given life in this coming age that will never end, that you will have life, aeonian, life that is age long. Does that make sense? That's why it makes total, consistent, logical sense to see that death is like a sleep, and it's not just living forever, because it would be very difficult to be given life in the coming age before that age begins, which is why the idea of going to heaven immediately at death and being given eternal life at that point isn't consistent with what the words actually mean. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to move on from there. That's why being given eternal life or life in the coming age is connected to when that age begins. And that age begins when Christ returns. So that's cool. When does that happen? I'm so glad you're here today. Here, we're going to go on and we're going to talk about the return of Christ, the return of Jesus. That's the hinge point. That's what we look forward to as believers. But there are a couple things that we need to understand about the return of Jesus. And then today, whereas in these, this series I have given you a whole bunch of verses, and we've got some verses today. Today, I'm going to camp on an entire chapter. And then we're going to look at some rather lengthy passages. So I'm going to move, and I hope you can keep up, but we're going to put this all in line so you can go back and review later. First of all, the return of Jesus will be literal. What I mean by that is it will be literal. So here, here we go. In the book of Acts, this is after Jesus was crucified, after God raised him from the dead. He'd spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then they're standing there on the Mount of Olives, and angels show up, and they take Jesus into the clouds. And they're looking at it like, what is going on? And so the angels say to them in uh, verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Can you just imagine the looks on their faces? right? He says to them in verse 19, um, nope, sorry, this same Jesus, verse 11, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. In other words, if you were standing here looking at him and he was taken up into the clouds, in the same way, this same guy is coming back, which means He's literally going to come back. This is not just, a, oh, he's going to reign in your hearts. It's not just you're going to become good people with a spiritual focus. This means Jesus the dude is coming back, okay? But it will not be a secret. In fact, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, part of their understanding is that Jesus came back in 1944, 14, 1914. You just didn't know it right? 
That's an issue because, according to Scripture, it's going to be visible. Notice what uh, he says in Luke 21. It's going to be visible. Go again. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, in, in a cloud with power and great glory. Wonderfully consistent with what the angel said. The same way you've seen him go is the same way he's going to come back. Going up into a cloud, coming out of a cloud, really him. Also, third thing is it's going to be sudden. There's not really a buildup. This is going to pop on people, and they are not going to expect it. Notice what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. The day of the Lord, and that is a phrase that is repeated over and over by biblical authors to refer to the second coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, a thief generally doesn't email you or give your internet address to say that I'm coming, right? It is a surprise, and this image of a thief in the night is used by different biblical writers. He goes on to say, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. In other words, people who do not believe are going to be going about their business just fine, saying, hey, you know, politically, uh, internationally, geographically, geopolitically, like life is great. You know, stock market is up, oil prices are down, wonderful, you know, life is grand, and then surprise. In verse 4, but he says, you, meaning believers, you who are Christ followers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. In other words, while this return of Jesus is going to be surprising to the public at large, it will not be surprising to you. Why is that? Well, Jesus gives us some clues. And because he gives us some clues, I think it's important that you have an understanding of what those clues are so that you are not surprised by the return of Christ. So here's where I'm going to camp on an entire chapter. Matthew 24 is an entire discussion out of the mouth of Jesus about signs of the end of the age. Like, what's going down? When's it going to happen? What we have here is Jesus is doing some general teaching about things that are going to happen. And then later on, and this is typically how it would happen, right? Jesus is doing a public teaching, and then later they're walking down the road with the disciples, and they're like, Jesus, we did not understand that. Can you explain that to us? And this is what happens here. And so Matthew is writing down this private conversation that Jesus has with his disciples to explain the very thing that they did not understand as he was teaching. So we're going to work through an entire chapter. I just have a bunch of verses here, and we're going to wade through it, okay? Here we go. Matthew 24, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Referring to his entire teaching. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, they had an understanding that they lived in a present evil age that would come to an end, and there is a coming age that would be inaugurated by his coming. So essentially they say, tell us, how will we know? How will we not be caught off guard? How will we not be surprised? Verse 4, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 5, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Now, I find it amazing that other people could pretend to be saviors of the world and people would actually buy into that. But then I get on Facebook and realize people will believe anything. So you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
but see to it that you're not alarmed. I cannot tell you how many times, you know, Prophecy News Watch and all of these things, as you look at, you know, geopolitically, you know, people are, you know, this country's lining up this, and there's, you know, North Korea's doing this nuclear test, and Putin's over here doing this. And it's interesting to me, because there are specific biblical clues that these could line up with, but it seems as if there have been clues throughout history that different generations have at different times thought this is it. So I'm not discounting that these things could in fact be the setup, but I am not claiming that they are. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's a fine line to walk here. But he says, see to it that you're not alarmed. There is a difference between being aware and being alarmed. We want to be aware. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So even when the world seems to be falling apart, don't freak out it's not over yet. The end is still coming. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Going into labor is an interesting thing because it's different for every woman who does it. And when it begins, you never know how long it's going to last. Some of you have really, really quick labors, and some of you <laughs> blame it on your children after they're born, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, 14 hours, you know, whatever it was. But there is a sense of something is happening. It is a painful process, but there is an end that is close. You don't know how close. So Jesus is saying one of the signs of the end of the ages is this, natural disasters. That's not the end. But it's a sign that the end could be around the corner, but you don't know how long, right? It's not going to be comfortable in the meantime because it's like labor pains, but it's coming. You can be sure, right? Now, what's real interesting is with our age of technology, we can track everything, right, with uh, the National Weather Service and the National Geologic Service, and we have all sorts of stat data that indicates the frequency and the... Um, uh, frequency and, and the number of famines and earthquakes are increasing, but we have a very relatively short uh, time period of data, right? Maybe the last couple hundred years. However, you know, people say, well, it's, you know, global warming or not global warming, that may be the thing that God is using to do this. I don't know. Or you could ignore it and say, whatever the case is, things are ramping up. But let's move on because that's not the end. Verse 9, then... You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. So after all of this other stuff happens, things are going to get really bad for believers. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me, which is interesting because we have an increase in famine and earthquakes, etc., etc., natural disasters. And is Christianity becoming more popular in our culture or less popular? You make the call. Um, verse 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. <laughs> Having watched this last election cycle, the last eight years, the last decade, the last two decades, in America, and again, this is just a small sample size, would you assess that our culture is becoming more loving and more accepting of Christians or less loving, you make the call. But the point is, Jesus ain't so wrong. And 
Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So if we're looking for particular signs, I think it's rather difficult to say, oh, people are less loving and people don't like Christians. Because believe it or not, we're not so bad off in America. You know when it was bad off? Rome. You got fed to lions. So it's, believe me, they thought the end was coming, right? And in America, even though it's uncomfortable sometimes politically to be a Christian, China's got it worse. People are, Afghanistan, you can get killed over there for being a Christian. But the point is, we can't take those things and say, ah, these are discernible, the end is yet to come. However, when it comes to preaching, go back one time, to the whole world, then the end will come? Well, we can, in fact, count how many languages the Bible has been translated into. We can, in fact, track how many people groups have been uh, introduced to the gospel, right? So at some level, we'll be able to pinpoint, I don't know, within a couple years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, when we have finally reached worldwide evangelism. So I would say, as as a general rule, now we can go on to the signs of the end of the world is moral decline and worldwide evangelism, okay? Then we'll get there. Now, I would say we're closer now than at the time of Christopher Columbus, yes? I would say we're closer now than before there were any Christians in America, right? So you, you can just track that. And uh, so are we there yet? I don't know. Again, I'm not saying, oop, look out, go home and sell your stuff. But what I am saying, you need to be aware, So Jesus goes on because now he gets really pretty specific. So after all of these things begin to happen and you start to get a little bit, you know, radars up and you're wondering, so when you see standing in the holy place, and that is a Jewish term for the inner part of the temple that was built in Jerusalem, right? And he was standing there looking at it. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, to which you're saying, I'm reading it and I don't understand. Well, I'm glad you're here today because you're about to. So what I want to do is introduce you to what Daniel says about this. So at least you'll be aware. At least you'll say, oh yeah, I remember some guy, you know, talked about that. So this is what Jesus is referring to out of the book of Daniel. Daniel, and by the way, in the, your note page, I have Daniel 7. That is incorrect. It's Daniel 9. The verses are correct. The chapter is wrong. So make that correction, please. Daniel 9. He is talking about the future event when an Antichrist is going to show up. This person who is working in opposition to God and all these end time things will circulate around them. And Daniel says this. He says, and his end or the end, but it's specifically talking about his end will come like a flood. Uh, War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. So again, that sounds very much like what Jesus is talking about. There's going to be desolations and wars, but specifically this. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And that word seven there has been confusing to biblical scholars for years and years and years. I am not here to explain that word for you. It simply means a group of seven. Most people believe it's a period of seven years. The actual word is a heptad. It's a unit of seven. You figure out, sometimes you'll read a a translation, it'll say a week. It's a group of seven. So this guy 
is going to make a covenant with many people for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, what's the middle of seven? Three and a half, right? So many people, and let me just step out of this for a second. Many people think that this is a seven-year period where this Antichrist is going to create a peace treaty with many people, specifically the Jews, because this is happening in and around the temple. And halfway through that seven years, which is three and a half years, something's going to happen. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So essentially, this guy is going to, in some way, defile the temple of God, and then the end that is decreed is going to happen. That's what Jesus says. When you see this thing happening, the end is going to come. Now, the interesting thing for you and me is if we were to you know, get on Google Maps and look at central Jerusalem, what do you see in the place of a temple? You see a Muslim mosque. There is no temple. So there are a number of believers who think that their temple must be rebuilt before the end can come if, in fact, somebody is going to defile it. Does that make sense? Okay, that is one interpretation. There are also other people who believe that this happened in the year 70 AD when Antiochus Epiphanes came in. He did something like this, uh, uh, slaughtered and sacrificed a pig on the altar. So if you know anything about Jewish law, pigs, no, no. So that defiled it in a way, and then they tore down the temple. I'm not sure how I make that work with then the end will come, because it's been about 2,000 years. So here we come back. Jesus says one of the signs, go to the next screen, please, is an abomination of desolation that Daniel talks about. That's what Jesus says. So we'll work this out. Coming back to Jesus in Matthew 24. When you see this, he says, then... Let those who are in Judea, so he's talking specifically those people in and around Jerusalem, flee to the mountains because it is about to go down and you don't want to be close. Verse 17, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. In other words, this is going to go down quickly. It's going to happen suddenly like a flood, he says. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. See, up until this time, Jesus might have said, how Dreadful is it for the husbands of pregnant women and nursing mothers. But in this time, it is dreadful for the pregnant women and nursing mothers. Verse 20, pray that your flight will not take place in winter. Why? It's hard to run into the mountains in winter, right? Or on the Sabbath. Why? Because if you're a good Jew, you can only go a certain distance. And then you get caught and killed. So hopefully it doesn't happen on that day. Verse 21, for then, so when all of this happens, there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. The word that is generally described to characterize this entire time period is this word here, tribulation. So if you've ever seen that word, this is what they're talking about, okay? So as Jesus describes this time of incredibly difficult distress, persecution, this abomination of desolation, the desecration of the temple. Here's what he says, verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, meaning that God will intervene and stop what's happening under the direction of this Antichrist person, no one would survive. But 
For the sake of the elect, that's those people who are Jesus followers, those people that God has chosen to save, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, because I'm telling you, at that time, people will be looking for him, and they'll be desperate to find him. So if somebody shows up and says, there he is, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. (laughs) And I don't know how Jesus said this last phrase, but verse 25, see, I've told you ahead of time. In other words, you have no excuse. You are to be on your guard. You are to have your radar up. So as Christians, and, and... I I run into people all the time that say, well, I don't really like prophecy. I don't understand it. We don't have the opportunity not to. Now, we don't have to figure out every single little detail, but I'm telling you, in the end, we win, and there are some general things that we can look out for. Now, Jesus goes on, okay, because Jesus hasn't come back in this outlay yet. What time is it? Ten till? quarter till. So we're done? Okay. I'm only getting half, half of it done today. We're going to finish this chapter, and then I'll leave the second half of my sermon. And maybe we'll just do this until March. I don't know. So here we go. Um, so Jesus keeps going here. Uh, okay, 26. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west... So will the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, when Jesus shows up, everybody's going to know. You can see it in the West. You can see it in the East. There is no, hey, did he come back Thursday? You'll know. In fact, and then Jesus says this weird thing. He always says weird things. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. What? Essentially, there's signs that give you an indication, right? You're going to be able to see from a long way, oh, there's something dead over there, right? So just in the same way, hey, Jesus is coming. You don't even have to wonder. And then he says this. You see Jesus come back, verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. I don't know what that means, but it does not sound good. Like, I don't know. So then verse 30, then. So when you have this cosmic cataclysmic shift, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Why would they mourn? They'll mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. We will talk about that trumpet call next week. And they will ga- and then they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. In other words, when you see Jesus coming, there's a lot of people not going to be happy about it. If you're a believer and you anticipated and you were looking and he talks about standing firm to the end, you better clap your hands because there's angels coming to get you. And then he talks about a fig tree and how you can see that. But we jump down in the chapter. But about that day or hour, no one knows. 
So anytime you see somebody selling a book, Jesus is coming back in 2018, or he's coming back in October, you just don't know. At least Jesus said that, if you believe Jesus. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. In other words, nobody but God knows. Now, maybe, and this is just pure conjecture, maybe now that Jesus is sitting next to God, he maybe did one of those disciple things and said, hey, you can tell me now. But at this point, he hadn't been taken to heaven and he didn't know. Verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son and man. Well, what is that like? Glad he explains it. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were just going on about life. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, he says, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Kind of nervous. Kind of cool. But certainly not boring. Do we want to wrap up a, with a song? Joy to the world? Anyone? Okay, so for the world's worst transition, we'll just pause there. We'll come back next week and we'll hit it hard. Let's go ahead and close our service. While the guys are coming up, let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for uh, laying out for us the pictures in Scripture. There's a lot of it that confuses us, but there's enough there that we can at least have an idea. I pray that you give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us certainty in some level. And I pray that you would help us stand firm to the end so that you might find us faithful when you return. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.